This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for choosing this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream fresh episodes every Thursday, so subscribe to ensure that you get them all. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might remember episode 53, where we talked about the stories of a number of forts along Hadrian's Wall, including Carabruff Roman Fort, which first came under English Heritage's care in January 2020. One of 16 forts along the wall, it housed a garrison of approximately 500 soldiers. Carabruff was also home to the Temple of Mithras, which was built to worship a Persian god. But who was this Mithras? What was Mithraism? And why was the temple built there in northern England? Well, joining us to reveal the cult of Mithras are our two guests for today. Hello, I'm Paul Patterson and I'm a senior properties historian. And I'm Francis McIntosh and I'm collections curator for Hadrian's Wall in the Northeast. I'm really curious to get to know this Mithras, this god. Who was Mithras in the minds of people across the ancient world, Paul? It all starts long before the Romans, in fact. And Mithra, a deity called Mithra, originated as a god of the ancient Iranians, perhaps as early as 1400 BC. And this was a, a multiple god religious system, a polytheistic system. And Mithra was one of these gods. As far as we know, it could be as early as 1400 BC, but not much about the whole religious system of the ancient Iranians was written down until around about the 6th century BC. And it's then that we get the name of this deity called Mithra actually written down. Now, perhaps as early as the 10th century BC, or possibly as late as the 6th, and there's no real agreement among scholars, an Iranian prophet called Zarathustra, or Zoroastra, challenged this traditional religion and transformed it, or tried to transform it, into a monotheistic religion, a single god religion, while not originally at least denying the possibility of the existence of these other deities that existed in people's minds for a long time, including Mithra. Zoroaster's influence eventually led to the ancient Iranians adopting a monotheistic religion, Zoroastrianism, which actually still exists in small numbers today. Now, Mithra was one of the pre-Zoroastrian deities, if you like, but an important one. And he was the god of a lot of things, including covenants, the sun, very importantly, the sun and light, oath, contracts, justice, and being the guardian of truth, but also more ordinary things like looking after cattle, the harvest, and water. And so we get inscriptions to Mithras after the time of Zoroaster, and at times he was worshipped as a standalone god. So we get sculptural depictions of Mithra under the Parthian Empire, which was from about 250 BC to about 224 AD, and that overlaps with the Romans, and they actually came into conflict. And so for the first time under this Parthian Empire, we get really good depictions, reliefs, sculptures of Mithra. And interestingly, he is shown as a god in his own right, but dressed in something called a Phrygian cap, Persian trousers, and also from his head, the radiating rays of the sun. And that's something that we will encounter later in the talk. So to conclude, he is an ancient deity of the, of the ancient Iranians, and it is a borrowing that brings it into Roman culture. You mentioned, Paul, that um, this idea of the deity called Mithra uh, went back as far as the 6th century BC. How far does that predate Roman civilization? Well, it's, it's more or less in the early stages of Roman civilization. So the, the early stages of Rome are in the 8th and 7th century BC. So slightly before this writing down of the existence of Mithra, but not by much. Right, so almost running in parallel in terms of these two cultures developing. How and when did Mithras enter Roman culture then? You mentioned this conflict between uh, Rome and modern-day Iran. Yes, indeed. The expansion of the Roman Empire, particularly from the middle of the first century BC, brought Rome into conflict with 
the ancient peoples of Iran, in this case, in the form of these people called the Parthians. But they probably had contact before that in more conventional terms, in, you know, in trading and just meeting, basically, in their everyday lives. But it's probably this time of conflict which introduces the Romans to Mithra in some detail. And they may have found him particularly appealing because he's often portrayed in Iranian culture as a warrior and as a god of fire. And that was probably particularly appealing to Roman soldiers. And so it's likely that soldiers, both Roman soldiers and Parthian soldiers and others in that region that eventually came into the service of Rome, when they were posted to different parts of the Roman Empire, for instance, they would have played a key part in its spread. And so gradually, it seems, a Roman cult of Mithras emerged, inspired by Mithra, but not an exact import or copy. In fact, the origin of the Roman cult is disputed among scholars. They don't really have a handle on how it happened. And there are extremes of view. Some say that it was directly derived from Mithra. Others, that it was an independent creation, actually in Rome, in Italy. Though I think most people believe that the truth lies somewhere in the middle and that actually it's a Roman invention with a whole Roman liturgy that serves what happened in Mithraism. But it is actually based upon perceptions of the Iranian deity. But really significantly, Roman Mithraism emerges with its own defined liturgy and way of doing things. And the worship of Mithras was done in, in a very discreet and repeating way in the Roman period. Interesting. So from a sort of PR or propaganda type uh, perspective, I suppose they've hit upon a, a figure who is very inspiring and can perhaps be this catalyst for further expansion and war and um, seizing of lands. Part of the answer to that is that wherever they went, the Romans borrowed and incorporated and merged elements of other religious systems. They were very tolerant of religions generally. And often they would identify their own gods with a certain element or certain elements of gods that they encountered. Yeah, And so they became attractive. And what you get is merged versions, which are particularly Roman, but are neither pure Roman from the Roman pantheon, nor pure from the source that they were deriving them from. And I think that's probably what happened with Mithras. They saw certain characteristics in Mithras, which they identified with from their own religious experience and from their own religious pantheon. And so they mold it into a particular religion with its own liturgy and iconography. Yeah, mm. that's the process that's going on. Just a quick thing before we move on to the next question. How are we best pronouncing the word? You say Mithras. I've heard other people say Mithras, and it's M-I-T-H-R-A-S. So what's the best way for listeners to uh, pronounce it? Well, I don't think it matters. You see, I'm from the north of England and I just pronounce things in, in my own <laughs> way. It doesn't really matter. I've heard it Yeah, people ways. say it always, yeah. don't they really? Okay. Yeah. Are you a Mithras or a Myth Mithras? Francis? I'm more a Mithras. Right, okay. I don't know why, even, although I'm also northern, so it makes no sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, here's a new word, Roman Mithraism. So how does that differ from the religion of the Iranian Mithra or Mithra? In truth, it's very, very hard to decide or even to analyse that because the survival of written information about both versions, the, the original Iranian version and the Roman version, it's minuscule. So it's very, very difficult to compare. But what we can say is that the Roman Mithraism did develop as a religious cult in its own right. And we can identify a discrete liturgy and iconography which repeats itself all across the Roman Empire where we where we encounter it. We know it partly borrows from the Iranian original, we've just been talking about that, but it evolved itself into being part of the Roman pantheon of religions. It was something, as I've said, that the Romans did over and over and over again. What we know of Mithra in the original Iranian religion, the whole structure of the theology the gods and goddesses of, of that religion are completely different in terms of their names and who they are and what they represent. So we can see from that that there is a clear difference and that this is a, a prime example of the Romans borrowing 
and moulding it for their own reasons and their own purposes. How widely adopted did Mithraism become across the Roman Empire over the centuries? It spread very rapidly and across large parts of the Roman world, particularly actually in the western parts of the empire. It didn't gain great purchase in the, in the, the furthest eastern parts of the empire at all, but it flourished from, let's say, the first century AD, the middle of the first century AD, to the end of the fourth and into the fifth century AD. And it was immensely popular. It actually became a mainstream religion, not a marginal or set-aside thing, or actually unusual, even though it's a mystery cult, and we'll be talking about that in a minute. There's no real evidence, at least in the beginning, that it was marginalized or you know, subject to persecution of any kind. That does come later in the history of Mithraism, but certainly for you know two, three hundred years, it's fairly mainstream and very widely adopted. I mean, in Rome itself, they know that there were something like 19 Mithraic temples. Uh, those are just the ones that have been identified, uh, with another 15 nearby in the port of Rome at Ostia. There would have been many, many more. And so eventually it extended across much of the empire. It was popular, particularly, as I've said, among soldiers, including in situations like the one that we'll be talking about shortly on the frontiers. But it was also common in towns and cities in the hearts of many of the Roman provinces. Let's bring in Francis now. Why is Mithraism referred to as this mystery cult? Because to our modern ears, that sounds a little bit suspect. Yeah, I suppose the phrase does make you think, oh, you know, what's going on? But we often think that about anything when we don't know or people are excluded, don't we? You know, you um, always suspect things that you don't know about or you're not part of. But it was a mystery cult because it was private. So the liturgy was secret. It was only revealed once you were part of the religion. And it wasn't also revealed at the beginning. So we think that you would learn a little bit of the liturgy and the kind of secrets of the cult as you progressed through the religion. So there were kind of grades, we think, with series of rites and trials, and you weren't supposed to talk about Mithraism outside of it. The passing on of that knowledge seems to have only been within the religion. They may have written it down, but we haven't found those sources. So to people outside, it was very mysterious, and it makes it even harder for us today as archaeologists and historians to be able to understand it because there was so little kind of given away at the time. And yes, it was in plain sight with all these temples. Yeah, and you wouldn't make a secret of the fact that you were a Mithraic worshipper, but that would be all you would say to somebody who wasn't part of the group of Mithraic worshippers. Um, it was very much you had to be in to right. know what was happening. You said, Francis, that we haven't really discovered the documents relating to Mithraism. So how are we even having this podcast today? Yeah, good question. There really is almost no written material from the Roman world which kind of gives any details or even kind of general outlines of what was involved in Mithraism and being a worshipper. There are a few references to it by Roman authors, but not many of them go into much detail. There's a couple of sources which are give us more information. One is the poet Statius, who around 80 AD talks about Mithra, so not actually Mithras in the Roman period, but Mithra from the Iranian religion. And he says Mithra in a, was in a Persian cave where he presses back the horns that resist his control. And that's a reference to two really key features of Mithraism that we'll talk about later on, a cave and a bull, and they're consistent throughout. And then Justin the Martyr, um, about 150 AD, talks about initiation into the religion, again, in a cave, and mentions that Mithras was born from a rock. So we get little hints, and some later sources give us information as well. But really, what we're working with is archaeology, which is the physical evidence, so maybe mosaics or frescoes, so painted images and writing, epigraphy, say altars with inscriptions to Mithras or graffiti, and then the structures of the Mithraic temple themselves, which are known as Mithraea as the plural, and then a singular is a Mithraeum. All across the empire, you know, Paul's mentioned how widespread this cult was, 
the features that you find in the Mithraea and the formula on the inscriptions, the, any of the pictures we see of any things, they're common throughout. So it shows us that although it was a secret cult, they were passing on that information somehow because they're sticking to the same symbols and liturgy all the way throughout. But the fact that there's very few written sources, and obviously archaeology in its very nature is fragmentary, does mean there's still a lot of controversy and um, debate among scholars about the finer details of the religion. Fascinating. So the Romans kept it mysterious at the time, and it very much remains that way. (laughs) That's right, yeah. A couple of thousand years later. What about how attractive Mithraism was to certain parts of society? We talked about the soldiers being very attracted to it, but um, was it open to all members of society? Could anyone take part? If you were a man, it didn't matter on your class, you could all take part. So, But unfortunately, it was a male-only cult. So if you were a man, there seemed to have been no kind of limits. There were slaves, there were freedmen, kind of ordinary citizens, soldiers, members of kind of imperial administration, even some higher class people, generally not the senators who are the, uh, you know, the top social status, although occasionally they were members if they were within the military. And again, the class below those senators, the equestrian class, they're generally not part of Mithraism unless you're part of the military. So as Paul was saying, with the soldiers playing such a key role, we think in spreading the religion, the military often seems to have been you know, a big driver. So even if in general, your group of people wouldn't have joined Mithraism, you seem to maybe have done it as if you're part of the military. So maybe those aspects of Mithras appealed to you more if you were in the military. Or maybe it's a, you know, a social thing to take up that god whilst you're out on the frontier or within the military unit. Mm. You never know. (laughs) Listening with my modern day ears, it sounds like a very, very strong masculine figure to aspire to especially if you're in a culture which is effectively dominating most of the Mediterranean and and Europe so that must have been very appealing to a patriarchal type society what do you think of that Paul? I think there's probably something in that but I think when Francis explains what we perceive the liturgy of the cult to be you might see that it has a wider appeal than that uh, so okay. it, it is not necessarily so masculine. From what we've said so far, I can see how you would get that impression. And as I said, I think there's an element of truth of it. But analysis of the iconography that we find in temples might give you a bit more information about what the whole thing is about and that it's not necessarily so masculine as we've given the impression it could be. Well, let's um, discover a bit more about these temples and what form the Mithraic temples took. So. Can you explain what they might have looked like in ancient times? Yeah. So, and again, we're, we're revealing this, like we're, we're peeling back an orange, the segments of an orange. Mm. Uh, and so some of the things that I will say now will become more apparent when Francis comes into play a little later on. But they are intended to look like a cave because as we learn later on, there's a key part of the the whole religion which was formulated around an event that took place in a cave. And so they're generally quite small, fairly simple structures. So when they are built, if they don't use natural caves, and sometimes they do, so when they're built structures, they're actually only about 10 or 12 meters long and about four up to six meters wide. So it's like a big room, basically. It's not like a huge temple that you might imagine in Roman times. So the congregations were probably no more than 30 or 40 people in most cases, and sometimes even smaller than that. Although sometimes it's thought that the communities may have been larger, but were divided into different congregations that worshipped at different times. But certainly from the size of the buildings, it's quite a small community of people who are worshipping at any one time. As I've said, some temples are natural caves, And where the buildings are specifically made, they are, when we have the evidence surviving, they are made to resemble caves inside. So they were probably quite dark with very careful use of natural or artificial light to create some kind of secluded secret atmosphere within the temple. Where they built, they're usually rectangular, comprising one or two rooms. And so you enter at one end, 
into something called an, a narthex or an antechamber. And then from there, usually through a screen or a wall, into the main room, which in Roman terms was called the keller. This is the main part of the temple. And interestingly, as Francis was alluding to earlier, the same elements repeat themselves over and over in temples. So this keller comprises a central passage, a walkway, if you like, flanked by benches, which are raised nine or 10 inches off the floor, where the congregation would have sat or reclined on either side. And their focus at the far end from the entrance was the shrine or the sanctuary, where the principal iconography of Mithras was placed. The sanctuary, if you like, where you would have find altars and where offerings were made. And usually with a small space behind where a leading member of the congregation would have led the ceremonies and the worship. And so in this space, there would have been quite a lot of altars dedicated at different times by different people. There would have been statues of attendants associated with Mithras, cult animals associated with him. And some of them were not just in the, in the shrine, but also in the passage leading up to the sanctuary. And also, in some cases where the evidence survives, we know that the walls and the floors were elaborately decorated, painted ceilings, depictions in paint and mosaic on the floor and the walls, which depict elements of the liturgy. And this is where we get our information from, as Francis alluded to earlier. You need that text to translate yes. and then be, to be able to explain. Absolutely, so yeah. That's vital, and isn't so it? These, these temples are, are everywhere. There are lots and lots of them in cities and towns and in these military settlements. On, for instance, on Hadrian's Wall, we're going to be focusing on that later. But relatively few you find in the countryside. So they, it does seem to be a cult that's focused where there are significant concentrations of people. Across the Roman Empire, how many Mithraea were built? Or were thought to have been built. We, we absolutely have no idea. However, what we do know is that there were lots of them. At the latest count, I think about 420 have been identified as surviving in whole or in part across the Roman Empire. But there would have been many, many more than that. There are over a thousand inscriptions to Mithras known across the empire and 700 depictions of this central scene of the bull killing in the cave known from across the empire. But there would have been many, many, many more. So that begs the question, as the Romans enter Britannia in uh, roughly AD 43, according to the delineation of dates in the history books, how many Mithraeo then built in Britain? Same answer, really. We don't actually know, but there would have been quite a lot. We certainly have six known temples that have been excavated or explored in Roman Britain. Carabruff, which we're going to be talking about, Housteads and Rochester, also on Hadrian's Wall. There was one at Carnarvon in North Wales, the one in London in the city, and even one in Scotland at a place called Inveresk, which is just east of Edinburgh. And then in addition to that, there are some more sites which have produced altars or dedication slabs to Mithras. And presumably these were also once in temples. So Castlesteads, which is another Roman wall site, Lanchester in County Durham, Caerleon in South Wales, and High Rochester in uh, Northumberland. And they've also found fragments of a bull slaying scene at Colchester and a whole bull slaying scene in York, which you can still see today. So if you add that all up, we know of about 12 instances of Mithraic temples in Britain. But that's really the tip of the iceberg. Right. I'm curious about the Inveresque one in modern day Scotland. Listeners to our previous podcast about Hadrian's Wall will know about the Antonine Wall, which was the wall which was, which was built further up. And then, of course, they regressed back to Hadrian's Wall eventually. So how did that get there? Because um, people probably think that the Romans didn't really go that far up into Scotland, but um, there obviously is evidence well, that they did. Well, as you know, they did, and they built a second wall, which flourished in the middle of the second century AD, not long after the completion of Hadrian's Wall, actually, when they moved north under the emperor Antoninus Pius, hence the Antonine Wall. And that one of the forts along the line of this wall and in its hinterland, uh, this place at Inveresk, it also had a small 
civilian settlement outside it. And not all that long ago, part of a Mithraeum was, was excavated. It appears to have been constructed of timber, but laid within it, and it had been deliberately uh, destroyed, in fact, probably by the Romans themselves when they retreated from Scotland. They found the usual elements of a Mithraeum, including the, the side benches where the worshippers would have sat, and two spectacular altars, uh, one of Mithras, clearly identified as Mithras, and one of the sun god Sol Invictus, with which Mithras is sometimes identified. Mm. An absolutely stunning find in recent times. Amazing. What about the sites in England? Are they free to visit? Are, are they fairly visible if you're happening upon them? Well, only at Carabruff on the wall, which is perhaps the best example, and the London, the Walbrook example in London are now visible. The rest were excavated and then either infilled or, or destroyed. So the London one, you can visit that, and it's been reconstructed with sound and light as well inside the Bloomberg building in the city of London. And so you can experience a modern take on the light and the, the sound that would have happened inside a, a Mithraeum in Roman times. Or you can go to Carabruff and see a real thing in the open air in a spectacular location. But then you can also see some of the, uh, some of the sculpture and iconography at various places in the country, in the Yorkshire Museum in York, for instance, and also in the grip the Hancock New Museum in Newcastle, where a lot of the finds from, from the wall, in particular from Housesteads, where there was a Mithraeum, are on display. But in short, there's only two places where you can see a Mithraeum in this country. How many along the wall are there? Well, we know of Carabruff, Housesteads, Rudchester and Castlestead. So there are four of which Carabruff is the only visible survivor. Okay. How do we know that those other three then are there? Are they under the, under the earth and they've been sort of detected yes. through geophysical they, surveys? Yes, they've been excavated or there are Mithraic sculptures from them, so implying a temple. I think that's the case in the case of Castlesteads. Uh, but Rochester and Housesteads, we know of remains that were excavated and recorded. And Carabruff, for people who are interested in visiting, it's worth uh, trying to spell this out to uh, both domestic and international listeners because it's one of those weird English words which um, oh, yeah. you need to get right if you're typing it into a search engine. So it's C-A-R-R-A-W-B-U-R-G-H. So like yes, a B-U-R-G-H of Edinburgh. <laughs> yes, it looks but it's like a bruff. Borough, but it's a bruff. It's a local pronunciation. Yeah. So it's almost like Carrawburg, but it's Carabruff. So what images did Mithraism employ to inspire worshippers? We've touched upon some of the original ones with Mithra. What about the Romanized version, Francis? Well, Paul talked there about the bull slaying scene that um, has been found um, in York. And that's really the most important overall symbol. And it's not got just one thing. It's called a tauroctony. And basically, in very simple terms, what it shows is the god Mithras killing a bull. But the more you look at these scenes, particularly the ones that are really well preserved, you see so much detail and every little detail has a meaning. So in the tauroctonies, Mithras is usually kneeling on the back of a bull. He is, it's, it's a little bit graphic, I apologise um, in advance. He's pulling back the bull's head with his left hand and then he uses his right hand to stab the bull in the neck. And that's the real key kind of element is killing the bull to allow life. But then every little detail on that picture means something else. So the end of the bull's tail is depicted as an ear of wheat and and Paul mentioned earlier, didn't he, that one of the things that the original Mithra was kind of responsible for or helped towards was the harvest. Then a scorpion attacks the bull's testicles. A dog and a snake stretch up and they drink the blood. There's a raven who's flying above the scene. And then we also have the sun and the moon represented. And they are representing different scenes differently, either by the heads of the gods that link to those or by chariots. And people who are interested in star signs and, and the zodiac will recognise quite a few things there. And basically all the elements of the tauroctony 
correspond to constellations. So there's Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra and Scorpio that are represented um, along with some planets. So Mithraism is really tied up in the signs of the zodiac and kind of astrology and every little symbol you know meant something to other people kind of i suppose people involved often in symbols within the mithraya are mithras's attendants so there's cautes and counterpartes and they both hold a torch counterpartes is always on the left and he points his torch down and cautes holds his torch pointing up and as Paul mentioned, the Mithras in a cave is really key and the temples we think are often quite dark. So counters and counterparts with the torches are really important. So it's a really complex set of symbols. And I think initially when you come into a temple as Mithras, you wouldn't have understood it all. But as you move up through the religion and spend more time, you'd probably understand more and more each stage. Yeah, as you're revealing each aspect through our discussion... It's sounding even more vivid as we sort of progress through the darkness in a way. That's the thing, you know, say if you go to Carabruff today, you get an exam- an idea of the size of the temple, but you have to think of those walls being high with the ceiling over you and all the walls would have been painted. And although it would have been dark, there would also have been light in very specific places to bring to light these vivid scenes. The Romans were very clever and able to use light to highlight what they wanted and you know, the Mithraya are a real good example of that. Was it almost like the temple was the centre of the universe and as one of those few male members of this cult, you were part of that? Yeah, so kind of the Mithraeum or the Mithraea was seen as kind of an astrologically inspired representation of the universe. The centre of the ceiling was meant to be the celestial North Pole and it was the elements of the tauroctony correspond to constellations in the night sky at a specific kind of place. So there's planets represented as well as the signs of the zodiac, with Mithras being the sun himself. Paul mentioned Mithras being associated with Sol Invictus, the, the sun god, and sometimes they're merged together. Very interesting. I suppose it's almost a bit like going to a planetarium you know, yeah. <laughs> and watching one of those displays. Um, yeah, but you need someone to explain it, don't you? Exactly. And who was sort of presiding over this whole thing? Were were there priests? Well, we think the closest that there were to priests was kind of the top grades. So I've mentioned a couple of times, haven't I, about kind of grades of initiation. And the top grade was called the pater or father, who was associated with Saturn. And we think possibly they're the closest we have to priests and they're the ones who are, you know, initiating the new people up the ranks and may and know the full story of Mithras and all the symbols and the kind of the full liturgy of what the religion involves. Let's talk about these grades then of Mithraism and also where we get this idea from. Presumably it is from documentary evidence. Yeah, so there's seven orders or grades and they're mentioned in a letter of Jerome, who lived in the second half of the 4th and into the 5th century. And then they're also depicted in a few Mithraea, so one in Rome and one in Ostia, which tell us the seven grades. And so it goes up. The first grade is called Corax, and that grade or order is associated with the raven, you know, who we see on the Mithraeum, and also with Mercury. So there's lots of symbols at each level and the next one is the nymphus which is the bridegroom associated with venus the next step up is the miles or the soldier associated with mars which is a planet but also the god of war so very apt next is leo associated with the lion and the planet jupiter and then it's perses who was the persian which makes sense when you think of the origin of mithras who associated with the moon moving up you have Heliodromus, who was the sun runner, so associated with the sun. And in the top rank is the parter or the father who's associated with Saturn. And so we think that there are separate ceremonies to be initiated into the next grade. And we have two literary sources about the initiation, as well as one source which has depictions of the initiation ceremonies. And the depictions are on the wall of a Mithraeum at Santa Maria Capua Vetera in Italy. And um, knowing the names of the grades with these pictures means you can kind of 
try to work out which uh, ceremony is which, but we don't know. They do say, don't they, a picture tells a thousand words, but you can't always tell great details. So the two literary sources about two of the initiations are quite interesting. So we have Tertullian. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. He's a Christian writer in the late first to early second century. And he says, and we think he's talking about the initiation into the miles or the soldier rank, or it could perhaps just mean all kind of initiates. It's not necessarily clear the language, but he says, a crown is offered to him at sword point, as if in an imitation of martyrdom, which I suppose if you're a Christian writer, that is quite a easy recognisable image. And then he says, when the crown is placed on his head, he is urged to raise his hands and dash it from his head onto his shoulder, saying that Mithras is his crown. So in very simple terms, you think, oh, that's fine, isn't it? You're just kneeling down. Someone pretends that they're going to hurt you with a sword, but you know they're not. But we know a lot. If you imagine you're in a dark place, you don't know actually what's going to happen because presumably you weren't told about what was involved in the rite. It could be quite a scary, atmospheric, quite a big deal to kind of pass this initiation. So that's the soldier who's a middle rank. And then Porphyry, who's a second century writer, talks about the initiation into the Leontes or to become a Leo, a lion. And he says, and this is a, a direct quote, he says, so when instead of water, honey is poured to wash the hands of those being initiated into the Leontica, they are urged to keep their hands clean from all that is distressing and harmful and hateful. Since he is an initiate of fire, which purifies, they apply a liquid that is appropriate, rejecting water as inimical to fire. So there again, they're just having their hands cleansed, but you feel like maybe there might be a little bit more. And again, if you don't know what's coming, you can imagine they could be a little bit grueling. There are fictional, historical fiction books that talk about Mithras, and they often depict some of the initiation rites as being pretty extreme but we really don't know that and a lot has been made I think about these grades and the initiation ceremonies um, and how important it was to move up through the ranks but what's really interesting of all the inscriptions we have of names of Mithraic worshippers you know on the altars where they're offering something to Mithras less than 14% of those mention which grade they were within Mithraism but they almost always tells their status outside of the temple. So I mentioned, you know, that you could be a slave, a freedman, an ordinary citizen, a soldier, rich. So there's a real range of people who are Mithraic worshippers. And on their altars, they don't tell us what grade they are often, but they tell us who they are in the real world. So I don't know, maybe the grade isn't as significant as we think and we've just latched onto it because it's a detail we have and we can make some nice stories about it. It's very interesting. It sounds very complex, doesn't it? It it is really complex. I think seven grades, you know, moving up, because presumably you'd have to be, I don't know, a worshipper for a certain amount of time before you move up a grade. It's not going to be, you know, every week, is it? You wouldn't have thought. So because you'd also presumably want to limit the numbers in each rank because the parter is going to, you know, we don't think there was many at the top ranks. But yeah, it's it's so interesting and it's it's so intriguing because we have these little kind of tantalising glimpses with these two notes about the two of the initiation ceremonies, but we don't know the rest and it's so complicated. And I imagine there's a lot more that we also don't know about because it's it's never been revealed in the sources. And so I imagine it's even more complicated than we know about, really. Yes, and there's a lot of depth of meaning which appears to have been described to each stage. Definitely. So that's, it sounds very enveloping. You can sort of understand why people would want to get involved in this because it's almost taking you on a journey. New secret knowledge is being imparted to you, isn't it, every time? And it is secret. You're learning something new that a lot of people don't know. So I imagine that makes you feel very special, doesn't it? And gives you that sense of kind of importance, even if you were the lowliest rank of, you know, raven, you know something that others don't. Do we see Mithraism reflected in festivals during the Roman calendar or is it only something that is invoked during temple ceremonies? No. So despite there being hundreds and hundreds of religious festivals throughout the Roman calendar, there's none of them associated with Mithras. And I suppose that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if it's a mystery cult and you're only meant to reveal the secrets to its members, what would you do at a 
public festival, you know, <laughs> walk around saying we know and you don't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Interesting. And Paul talked about the congregations being quite small within the temples themselves. But do we know how many Mithraic worshippers there might have been across the empire? No, I mean, I suppose you could do some calculations. You could say we found 420 temples and say each one holds 30, you know, and guesstimates from that. But as Paul said, we only know 420, but we imagine there's thousands. But we have got the names of about 1,050 Mithraic worshippers, which is quite a lot across the empire when you think that these these congregations are quite small. And from those inscriptions, we can see that sometimes they're set up by individuals or by units, maybe a father and son or a brother combination. And there's a couple of places where they've looked kind of in detail who had founded that temple and who was putting up the altars. And on the frontiers, the cult's really rooted in the army and civilian settlers and the civilian kind of population did start to join the cult, but the army is a real key. And so at Carabruff and at Halsteads, all of the altars are inscribed and dedicated by soldiers. But at a port in Slovenia, Potovio, it was all the officials of the customs post who set up the earliest temples. And that's the same in a couple of places elsewhere um, in Noricum in Austria and Mesa Inferior and Bulgaria. And these officials are slaves. So they founded the temples and ran them. So it does show that it didn't seem to matter what rank you were outside of the world, you could found a temple, which is quite interesting. We've spoken about this uh, exclusive male-only domain of Mithraism. How would a, a man in Roman society get access to the religion? Well, we have no idea, but I'd imagine it's kind of by invitation because you couldn't go to kind of, you know, an open day, you know, or most temples you could just choose and go, but you could only go by invitation. So presumably the congregation would discuss between themselves who they might want to ask, or perhaps the parter could choose new members, but it's part of the secret nature of it was that you would have to be invited. And focusing on the Mithraeum at Carabruff, when was it built and what was its size and its location like, Paul, if you can describe the, how it appears in the landscape? It's amazing, in fact. It's about 30 miles along Hadrian's Wall from the Newcastle end, so from the east end. And today it's in a, quite an upland area. It also sits on a watershed almost where a small stream called the Meggie Dean Burn, that's another story incidentally, which rises nearby and then flows south down into the South Tyne Valley. So it's actually in a cleft, quite steep-sided cleft, quite close to the Roman fort and within the large settlement outside the fort. So it's on the edge of the settlement, but it's very much part of the settlement in this spectacular location on a watershed with an amazing view south. So it's got this strange combination of seclusion, but also magnificent views away to the, to the south. So it's, it's a wonderful location. It's still almost secret today, if you think about it. And when you stand there, there is a real atmosphere. I can't explain it other than that. I'm not a superstitious person at all, but it's a wonderful place to stand and contemplate what Mithraism was all about. It's also very significant in being close to water, as I think Francis might explain later. Okay, that's an interesting uh, tantalising feature. How long was it in use? It was excavated quite well in 1950, and from the finds that they got from that excavation, pottery, coins, and other things, they concluded it was being built around about 200 AD, and it was in use probably for about 150 years, so taking it into the early, mid-fourth century. So it's quite, quite a long time, about 150 years. And its size? It's quite small, yes. It's about 11 metres long, in its final form, that is, because there were several versions of it and about 4.6 metres wide, and it's, it's rectangular. So it's a very simple building and quite a small building. Is there any evidence of it uh, changing size over the centuries? Yes, absolutely. Because of its location, it actually became waterlogged, and that process began in the Roman period. So the preservation of structural materials, organic structural materials inside the temple, and as found by the archaeologists in 1950, enabled them to build up a fairly detailed picture of its history. And so it was altered on several occasions, in fact, 
But if we can simplify that, there seem to have been three Mithraic temples on the same site at Carabruff over that 150 years. The first one was actually quite small, so half the size of the surviving building that I've just described. So tiny. How many people you'd get in there? Probably a dozen at most. And then it was almost doubled inside. So this is Mithraeum II, if you like, to double the size of, of the original. And that building, we know, had two major internal refits in its life. So all the internal arrangements modified significantly or slightly on two occasions. And then finally, Mithraeum III is the building visible today, which is about the same size as the second Mithraeum, but it's a total rebuild from the previous structure, from the walls upwards, as it were. And that produced this building, as I said, about 11 metres by 4.6 metres. It's very simple. Entrance at one end, that's the downstream end from Meggie's Dean Byrne, and a small rectangular apse protruding at the other end. And it bears this usual form of an antechamber screened off from the main part of the temple or the keller and with the sanctuary at the far side. So it's absolutely a textbook example of a, a Mithraeum that we see all over the empire. And it just goes to show that these buildings were not static and that they were changed on probably many more occasions too. So we think it lasted about 150 years, but what caused its demise? This is a complicated one, and I don't think that the excavators were sure either, but they mentioned or alluded to several things. So towards the end of its life, there were already problems with a rising water level. And so it looks like the floor of the temple was being inundated on occasions because they found silt had been deposited on the floor. But also there were slight pieces of evidence which suggest that statues and the tauroctony, the bull slaying scene, for instance, had been tampered with. So the tauroctony, in fact, had been entirely removed. There was only a slight trace of it, and that was one horn left from the bull itself for archaeologists to discover. Two of the statues of, you know, these attendants of Mithras, Cortes and Cortopartes, which Francis mentioned, had been violently broken. Yet, three altars stood in their original positions in the sanctuary, apparently untouched. So it's possible that there was a combination of neglect due to the fact that they were having this problem with a rising water level, but it's also possible there was some vandalism or iconoclasm had occurred, perhaps towards the end of its life, when Mithraism perhaps was being considered sinister in some way. However, the true fate of the building was almost probably mostly due to the rise in the local water table. This did bring silt and sand from the nearby stream into the interior, and actually peat began to build up in what by this time was probably a deserted structure. And eventually that peat rose above the level of the side benches, you know, these nine, ten inch tall benches where people sat. It seems that the roof was probably stripped of its shingles, these wooden tiles, because only a few of those were found in ideal conditions for preservation. And most of the structural timber from the roof also was removed because they found a few pieces left preserved in the piece. So it's possible that the whole thing was abandoned and dismantled. At the same time, the walls began to collapse inwards. And during this process too, the site was actually used by the Romans in the nearby fort and civilian settlement as a rubbish tip that included, you know, large amounts of domestic rubbish, including the bones of animals that had been eaten. So it looks like it began to decline because of environmental conditions. It may have been vandalized, but its demise was certainly due to the rising water level. It's possible, of course, that they decided to move the temple elsewhere, but that doesn't really account for the apparent instances of willful destruction inside. So it's, it's a complex thing that's going on here, and it might be a, a number of things that happen to cause it, its end. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's lots of scenarios possible. I suppose you could have had invaders from the north who came in and smashed things up, or you could have just had people not being interested in, in uh, this religion anymore, and it just sort of gradually declined that way. We also know that there was a bit of a little bit of conflict between Mithraism and 
Christianity, early Christianity. But in fact, this seems too early. I mean, the early fourth century is when the first Roman Christian emperor, Constantine, is on is on the imperial throne. And so it's highly unlikely that there is willful destruction at that time. We tend to associate the trouble between Mithraism and Christianity with the end of the fourth century when Christianity becomes the approved religion of the Roman Empire. So it's kind of unlikely that it's iconoclasm. It's probably casual vandalism, in fact. How much of Carabruff Mithraeum do we actually see today? Well, you can see the whole thing, the whole, the whole ground plan, the, the stone walls of the temple are still there. And, and in places, they stand above waist height. So quite substantial. So you, if you doubled that and put a roof on, a simple pitched roof, you can imagine what the temple looked like in its day. The doorway is still there. You can walk into the anteroom and, and through the remains of the screen into the main part of the temple. And the altars are still there at the sanctuary. So although they're not the original ones, a lot of replicas were reproduced and the, the originals taken into museums. But you can walk into the temple today and you can see all the basic elements uh, of a Mithraic temple in place, with the exception of the, the bull slaying scene, which is, which is now gone. So it's a great place to go, and with a, just a little bit of imagination and a little bit of pre-knowledge, you can really feel what it must have been like. What's been discovered then by the archaeologists, um, apart from these vandalised elements of the bull? They found these different phases that I mentioned earlier. Because of the exceptional preservation, the waterlogged conditions had preserved timber and other organic products. So those things normally in archaeological contexts, decay and disappear. So you get a far less complete picture of what the building would have been like. So in this case, they were able to find in place the remains of the timber screen, for instance, between the anteroom and the main part of the temple. They were able to find the posts that held it in place. They were able to find the, the wattle work, that this woven timber structure that defines the edges of the benches where the worshippers would have sat. And even in some places, the timber boards on top of the benches, which would have been where they sat, presumably with rugs and cushions, while the, uh, the ceremonies were going on. But there were also some interesting small finds, as well as the structure of the temple. They found some interesting things in several different of the, uh, the phases in that 150-year period. One of the interesting ones was that they found several instances close to the altars at the far end of the sanctuary, either whole pine cones, and this was a type of pine cone that only grows in the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean stone pine, or a form of charcoal that's produced from the Mediterranean stone pine. And this apparently is associated with purification in a, in a religious, in religious ceremony. So you actually burn these pine cones or the, the charcoal that's produced for them, which gives off this very pungent pine purifying smell. But it also burns with a very dark red light, again, which is going to add atmosphere into the ceremonies. And they found this in several, several of the different phases as well. It was a repeating feature of what was going on during the ceremonies. Another thing they found, and this might be a bit controversial, but it's an interesting one, is that in the anteroom, the interpretation of the anteroom is that this is possibly where people being initiated into one of the grades of Mithraism would have both waited to join the congregation, but also a place where they may have gone through some of these ordeals that Francis was mentioning, you know, from the evidence of the Roman authors and, and one of the Mithraea in, in Italy. And in one of the phases, during his 150-year life, a kind of subterranean pit was constructed in the antechamber. It's about the length of a person and the width of a person and the depth of a person. So it's a bit like a coffin, if you like, a bit like a stone coffin let, in, let into the floor. Now, I don't know if this is true, but they interpreted that as a possible place where initiates were being placed to undergo one of the rituals or one of the ordeals, one of these slightly threatening scenarios that Francis was talking about. 
So that's one to ponder. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I can't think of any other explanation. So yeah. if you can, you know, uh, please I, I, answer, answer got, on a postcard. I've got an idea. Perhaps it's somewhere where a person was placed and then perhaps they would then come out of it and then emerge as a different grade, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good idea. Or perhaps it's they had to undergo some sort of challenge where they had to be in there in a claustrophobic situation for a certain amount of time before they could then come out. Yeah. Maybe something, something like that. Yeah, I think so. It's a very small, small room, the anteroom. There isn't a great deal of room in there. So what possible purpose could a person-sized recess in the floor actually be for? So it's, I think it's a good working idea that this is a place where you know, something slightly threatening did happen. Or maybe a priest was laid there to rest, but permanently, um, I don't know, after a lifetime of dedication to Mithraism. Who knows? Yeah, possibly. But I suppose one of the most remarkable finds, and I think Francis is going to talk about this, is the three stone altars, which were found very much where they had always been in the sanctuary. They are remarkable, and they have a great deal of detail about who was responsible for placing them there. Francis, then, these stone inscriptions or sculptural work, is it possible to see these in the remains of the temple at Carabriff today? Yes, yeah, so as Paul mentioned, the originals have been taken to a museum because obviously once they're exposed to the Northumbrian weather, they will continue to wear. But we can go see the originals in the Great North Museum, um, Hancock in Newcastle, but replicas have been made that sit in the positions they were found. And what's quite nice is that people often leave offerings on them even today, if you go to the temple now, there might be flowers or coins or other things on there. So as Paul said, the site is atmospheric. It does seem to affect people. It's quite interesting. And all three of the altars were set up by prefects, which was the officer in charge of the unit based uh, at Carabruff. And they all give their name and their rank. And interestingly, none of them, as we talked about before, give any indication as to what grade they were within the religion. But because of the dates, they've been able to approximately date them. So we think the first one dates to between 205 and 211, and that was dedicated by Aulus Cluentius Habitus, who's prefect of the first cohort of Batavians. And what I really like at this one is he tells us where he comes from. He's part of the Ultinian voting tribe from Colonia Septimia Aurelia Larinum. So he's not got you know, a shortage of space, but he doesn't seem see it as important to tell us what his grade was. And then the next one was dedicated by Lucius Antonius Proculus, who's also the, the prefect and perhaps the most famous one of the altars. So those two altars are, you know, beautifully made. But this one that was set up by Marcus Simplicius Simplex, who's a prefect, has on the front of the altar uh, depiction of Mithras as Sol. So with Sol, who's a sun god, you know, they're very interlinked at times. And his head has rays of a crown and the rays of the crown are formed by openings. And at the back of the altar is a niche and you can place a lamp there, which would then throw light through the holes or the, you know, through the rays of the crown. So if you can imagine kind of the effect that might have had in the space of the uh, Mithraeum. It's just, it's amazing, really. So although it's just the replicas, you can still really get an idea of um, the stunning pieces that they are. It's really interesting uh, how they've been dedicated by followers of this religion. Can you describe as well how the altars appear? Are they quite tall, uh, sort of waist height? How wide are they versus yeah. a sort of Christian altar that some people might be familiar with? Yeah, so altars tend to be rectangular approximately, and stood on their sort of short end, so they're, they're standing up quite tall. And they range in size, so we get very small ones, but these three are all about at least a metre high, maybe 30 to 40 centimetres across. And most altars then have kind of a semicircular kind of divot to the top, which is called a focus, where offerings could be made, and that's where the offerings are left today by visitors. And then they're usually the inscription is usually on the front, with extra detail, but sometimes um, they have extra decorative detail on the sides as well. It all depends, I think, on how much money the person who was dedicating the altar had, because the more detail you add, the more money it would cost. Are there other shrines to other deities in the local area along Hadrian's Wall? Perhaps if you're visiting Carabruff, you can walk along and, and see another place where a different kind of religion is being practised. 
Yeah, well, you don't actually have to leave Carabruff, really. There are three shrines or temples outside of Carabruff that have been identified. The Mithraeum is unfortunately the only one you can see physically, but there's two other shrines there. So one, which we now call Coventine as well, which was also outside the fort and along Paul's talked about the stream Maggie's Burn, which did quite so much damage to the Mithraeum. We think that stream was the kind of the source of the well at Carabruff. So Coventina is a local water goddess, perhaps the goddess of that stream, that burn. So the Romans built a rectangular base well kind of over the stream and then built a stone wall around it, kind of 12 metres square, so quite big. And John Clayton, who uh, we've talked about in previous episodes in relation to Hadrian's Wall, discovered this old, this shrine in 1876 and excavated it. And in there, they found about 16,000 coins, 10 to 15 altars. And most of the altars in Coventine as well are very small. So they're around 30 centimetres tall, so much smaller than the altars that you see in the Mithraeum. There was also other objects like incense burners and jewellery that were offered to the goddess Coventina. And Lots of these objects are on display at Chester's Museum, which is just six miles away from Carabruff. And a recent kind of addition to our resource is the Clayton trustees who own the Clayton collection, um, um, English Heritage looks after it for them, have 3D scanned about 30 objects from the well, and they have created a virtual reconstruction of Coventine as well in the 2nd century and in the 19th century when it was discovered with those objects. So you can really get an idea of how the shrine was positioned in relation to Carabruff Fort because Carabruff Fort hasn't been excavated. It's lumps and bumps in the ground. And it's a really fantastic resource if you just pop onto your search engine, Clayton Trustees, and check out their website. You can see it on there as their virtual museum. It's really amazing. And they're also currently working on the same sort of project for the Mithraeum at Housesteads, which again, there's nothing to see, but has been excavated. And there's material both in the Great North Museum and in Chester's museum that you can see. So they'll be really great to allow you to visualise what these temples were. And just next to the Mithraeum, again, you can't see this, but there's a shrine to the nymphs and the Genius Loki. So the Genius Loki is the spirit of the place. I quite like to say it's a bit of a catch-all. You know, if you're not quite sure who's, you know, which god or goddess is in charge of the area you're in, if you make an offering to the Genius Loki, you know, it gets you covered. And that's almost next door to the Mithraeum. So again, based around water, we have a well, one altar, and um, a very small curved wall with a seat. So a lot less information, but it shows really how much religion was just a part of life a lot more in the Roman period. It's, you know, there's deities of the springs of the local place, then and then there's, you know, Mithras, who's the god of all sorts, depending on what, which aspect you focus on. And so I think Carabruff's a really nice example of how much of a role religion played in Roman life. Yes, and the degree to which it was widespread and tolerated. So it was a polytheistic situation, wasn't it? Where well, exactly. you could sort of worship who you wanted and you weren't persecuted for it. Yeah, as long as you paid tribute to the cult of the emperors and the top Roman gods, you could worship whoever you liked. And so that's why Mithraism was accepted for most of the time, because it didn't exclude other deities whereas Christianity and Judaism were monotheistic. You know, you, you only worship the one God. And that's where the clash came between the Roman idea of religion and Christianity and Judaism. But Mithraism didn't have that problem. Are there any roots of Mithraism that we might see in modern day religions then? Bit of a tricky one, that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I suppose there's Zoroastrianism, which I can't say, but that comes from the Persians. So it's not actually the Roman Mithraism cult, is it? It's... Um, That's probably the only thing I could think of. I suppose the search will focus on elements of the iconography and how we interpret them, basically, as to whether we can identify anything that's come through in modern religions. And that's fraught with difficulties, I think. So you could start to talk about the cosmic struggle between good and evil, light and dark, which is a feature of modern Christianity and arguably if we interpret it that way, you know, some of the some of the things that we see in Mithraism can be interpreted as as the struggle between good and evil, light and dark. Possibly, I mean, I'm speculating here, and I, I actually don't know if there's much being written or researched on this of, of any great significance. 
And then there's, I suppose, other things which are not religious as such, which we might see as sort of astrology uh, emerging. Well, there isn't the the star signs and, you know, how much of an impact they have on your life. And if you are a Scorpio, it means you're this sort of thing. And does that have any links back or? I suppose there's also initiation as well. I know it's it's very different. There's a, a great difference between Christian baptism and, you know, some of the ordeals that we've speculated about. But there is this sense of entry into the into the family, into the cult, isn't there? Mm. Which I suppose is probably common to lots of religions. And I suppose, you know, in, in the Catholic faith, you have uh, confirmation as well. So you, you sort of go through the ranks that way from birth to adolescence to being an adult. So I suppose there's a bit of that yeah. there as well. It's not religious, but many people have talked about the Masons <laughs> and oh, its yes. similarity to Mithraism, just in terms of it being secret, you know, the grades and the fact that you, once a Mason, you can join a lodge elsewhere. Presumably that was the same Mithraism, but again. And originally all male, of course, as well. And all male, exactly. Mm. So people mm. do draw those comparisons, not that the Mas- Masonic Order is a religious order, but there are similarities in some of its structure. Well, hopefully there are people listening in other parts of the world who might be able to see some parallels between their particular religion and Mithraism. But it's all part of the human human condition, I think, isn't it, really, to have these beliefs. And there are commonalities and uh, differences between all of them. So that's a good it's a good point. And, you know, there are some scholars who interpret Mithraism, as we've heard, as a, you know, represented the temples are a representation of the cosmos. But also that the journey of an initiate into Mithraism through the various grades and the the revealing of the meaning of the universe was was a a kind of spiritual journey that happened over a period of time. And that is a common feature to lots and lots of different religions. Hmm. Enlightenment. Yeah. How to say something in one word rather than 50 words as I just did. No, but it's true, isn't it? I think you're you're born ignorant and you go through stages of enlightenment through your life, either through your experiences or through your religious beliefs. And then your life ends and you go back to the universe, effectively. I think that's um, a good point to end on, the fact that we have now been enlightened after going through the sort of dark stages of Mithraism and finally learning all about it in all its vivid colour and mystery as well. There's still plenty of mystery to discover around Mithraism. So we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're welcome. It's a very interesting chat. Still lots more to learn, as you say. You know, there's lots more to say. And uh, it's part of a a very widely studied thing. I mean, lots and lots of people are interested in Mithraism. So if if you would have at all been stimulated by what we've said, then there's masses of literature out there. So go out and find out more about it. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discover the ancient history of Thornborough Henges after this prehistoric monument complex became English Heritage's latest acquisition. That overarching big picture of this being a place of significance and a place of gathering actually is quite evocative, I think. Thanks for listening. See you next time.